0: Uh, a recently published book, uh, I think, makes an interesting contribution to the broader discussion that we're, that's inevitably going on now about the relationships between what might be kindly called the settler community and our Indigenous community. Um, and it's called Crossing Cultures, and it's uh, been written by Barbara Jackson. So I'm very pleased to join us now. Thanks very much for your time, Barbara.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me on your show, Paul.
0: This um book is about a, a much younger self, really, I guess. Um, what actually inspired you as a as a young woman to to take up the, this remote life uh, sort of coming out of the city in effect?
1: Uh, well, I, I was in my 30s, my early 30s, and my father had a job as the housing manager of Ali Karung, which is a small Aboriginal community about 200 K south of Tennant Creek. And I'd been to Europe with a friend, you know, as we did in those days, in a combi van. And when I got back, my father said to me, his name is Bill, Bill said to me, you've been all over the world, you know everywhere now, but what you don't know is the Aboriginal people living in the centre of our own country, and I thought, well, that's quite true. I don't. So he invited me to come and visit him in Karang, which I was very pleased to do, I must say, because I was very bored in my job. I was working in a, the Hotham Permanent Building Society and it was a bit of a round peg and a square hole deal, you know. So anyway, I caught the plane and I went up to Alice Springs and uh, Dad took me to Karang, and you know, I was entranced by the desert, you know, the, the the vast expanse and the skies. But I was very bewildered by the, you know, the Alikarung, which in those days was really a shabby, little, run-down little town in the middle of the desert. And at the end of my time, my short time with Dad, I had a lot of questions. I had questions like, why was Alikarung here? Where did these people come from? Um, why didn't they speak English? And then very sadly, um, in that short time I was in Karang, three local people died and it was just awful. So at the end of my holiday, I thought, well, I really have to just give away my Melbourne city life. I've got to come and live in the Northern Territory. I want to find out more about Aboriginal communities and I want to s- see if there's anything I can do. So on my last day in Alice Springs, I went to the Commonwealth Employment Service, which you might remember, the famous CES of those days, and um, there was a job for a health service administrator in Papunya. So I applied for it, and lo and behold, I got it. So that's how I, I went to Papunya, that first community.
0: Through the, the, your career out there, I guess, um, and as you describe in the book, you went through a series of administrative roles in different sorts of kind of starting off in the health area, but going through um, various other sorts of administrative roles. Uh, how, how was that kind of uh, role seen in the local community, like a white person basically coming in from the city to uh, do their administration? How was that seen?
1: Well, I had a couple of more. The, the the two other roles that I had that I talk about, um, I actually would have liked to have stayed in the northern in 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 central Australia. But the the thing is, in those days, you really had to be a nurse, a teacher, or a bookkeeper if you were female to work on on a community. And I wasn't any of those things, so I I really couldn't get back to a community until 1989 when I went to Canabal as a coordinator for uh, the community development employment program that was just starting up it was uh, there was a group of communities in that part of new south wales and Cannabal was one and so that was a, an amazing experience i really enjoyed that and then that only lasted 2 years because um, that was my 2 year contract and then i went overseas and worked in cambodia <laughs> and i came back and I thought about working in an Aboriginal community again and by this stage of course I'd gained more experience and more more work skills so I applied for a position as a council clerk I was the first council clerk for the Yarrowland community so I was I stayed there for a couple of years too so getting back to the point of your question about like white outsiders coming into communities um I mean, I can't speak for the Aboriginal people, but I can I can only speak for myself and what I, I saw and I learned in the time. I mean, I, was, I really did enjoy each of the communities and we had some really great outcomes. But I saw that it was, a, particularly in the Northern Territory, it was a bit of a revolving door. White people came in. They had to start from square one, had to learn who the people were, had to learn the community, had to learn the job, had to learn how to work with the government. And that would be the Northern Territory Government and the federal Government in the Northern Territory in those days. and And then then you could get some things done, and then basically we all left. So it was like this revolving doors. the whites came in, they worked, and then they left. And some people uh, didn't really adapt, so that the revolving door just went a bit faster. And I think you could probably say that is still happening to today. And an interesting thing about that though, is that uh, you know most things were controlled by these layers of government. the that was government policies, government rules, and government regulations. So the essence of my job as a council clerk was to obtain grants, to acquit grants, and to write the reports. And I had to make sure that all the rules and regulations, so it was really a in many ways, it was sort of a compliance job, if you like, which in hindsight, I really see it, it was it was very colonial structure, you know, with these white people coming in and everything had to be the the white way of doing things. And the the other part of that is, is that although there was the government was heavily involved in compliance it really wasn't very uh, active in strengthening communities. And for me, going to a remote community like Yarralyn, there was no mentoring. There was no cross-cultural advice at all. And neither did any government officers advise me and the council about how to do things. So you, uh, we were all we all had to wing it.
0: I must say. And, and if I recall correctly, um, you, you talk about the people uh, being seen as, as one of three M's, I think it is. Oh, yes.
1: Mercenaries, missionaries or madmen. <laughs> that was very common. In I, I don't know if it still is today, but that really, you could almost categorise everybody like that. And I think I was, I saw myself as a, um, I mean, I didn't really see myself as a missionary, but I was in that vein of doing good. And I and people say, "Oh, she's a do goody you know. But I actually thought it was quite nice to do good rather than to go, to do bad. And I suppose I was also a misfit from the city, you know. I actually loved being out in the bush. But yeah, that was that was very. Um, there were a lot of mer- there were a lot of mercenaries out there too. I can tell you.
0: Mm. Um, which leads me a little bit to to the way you've chosen to structure the book, which is full of these interesting anecdotes from your experience. But then you sort of, if that's the right kind of term, leaven the whole process with um, kind of historical data, which in many cases you say you found out after you, you actually were involved in the in the job.
1: That's absolutely right, Paul. When I started to write these stories, it was because i have been in a writing group for about a decade and I'd written quite a lot of stories and I was starting to feel more confident writing. So I started writing about my experiences in Aboriginal communities and I had, I had never told anybody these stories before and until I started to write them in this writing group. And one of those reasons is because... Um, the context of these communities and places was so unknown to the people that I knew in cities, they couldn't make hide nor hair of it. And I could see their, uh, you know, their eyes rolling with boredom. So I stopped telling my stories for that reason, but also for because some of the experiences I was very reluctant to talk about because I didn't want to trigger any negative stereotyping. So I basically didn't tell my stories until I was writing in this writing group. And then I discovered my writing colleagues loved hearing my stories. They were really interested about the um, Aboriginal communities because most of them had never been to a community. They also really enjoyed hearing about the places that I worked because some people hadn't been to the Central Desert. They certainly, Nobody had ever been to Canamble in New South Wales. And no one had been to Yarralin up in the top end of the Northern Territory. So that was really interesting for them. And so were the experiences I had, you know, the stories that I tell of what happened, et cetera, in my book. And I I really didn't, you know, these were. this is part of our Australian history and I didn't want it to be lost. What happened was is that I'd, I didn't understand things that I was writing about. And it was Papanya, for example. Why had that Papunya settlement been made in the first place? So I discovered it was because there'd been a ration point in Haast's Bluff and then the water um, was unpotable, so they moved it to Papunya and then I learned that's why all the different language groups were all lumped in together. So that was all missing. So I had to do the research to find that out. And, of course, when you read the book, you find it just goes back and back to when the first settlers arrived. And in Coonamble, I'm a Victorian, so what do we know about New South Wales history? You know, we struggle to know anything much of our own history. So I had to do the same sort of research because I didn't even know that the Whalewan people were the traditional custodians. I found that out when I started doing my research. And fortunately, the Canamble Shire has done has done some really good work of, of building the past. So that was very helpful. And then I read a book by an historian called Heather Goodall who gave me a lot of information. And, of course, then moving into Yarraland, the same thing. I knew that there was a relationship between the people of Yarraland and Victoria River Downs, which had been the largest cattle station in the world. But what I didn't know was the brutality of that history. And, in fact, um, there were books by the anthropologist uh, Deborah Bird Rose that I read, but the history by Daryl Lewis hadn't been written when I was there. So uh, it was through those books that I actually went back through time and I read a lot of stuff on the internet too. I just Googled and Googled. To find out how these places had come about, so that that is how it happened. You know, I had these stories, but I had to fill in the context; otherwise, I didn't understand where I was, and no, none of my readers would either.
0: And it sort of, in a sense, illustrates, if I may say, uh, your willingness to to um, understand and express. Uh, your understanding of your own naivety about a lot of those things when you went into those communities. Well, I think that's the whole point of the book in a way. You know, I
1: went there as, you know, Barbara Jackson, ordinary person, uh, Anglo, Anglo-Australian, so I took my own cultural baggage, my own cultural knowledge, and I also took with me that appalling lack of uh, historical uh, information that we had. I mean, we can, being my age, I know that I was taught virtually nothing about the Aboriginal people in this country, and what I did learn was was all negative. And that sort of uh, educational experience went on for many years. I, I, one of my neighbours gave me a um, textbook for schools that was written in 1969, and it was just appalling, you know. So we had that terrible uh, culture of silence, as that anthropologist Stanner talks about, uh, so I took my own my own cultural baggage with me, and I had to unlearn a lot,
0: and I had to learn and unlearn. A, a little incident that's probably not directly sort of to do with that cultural cross cultural thing was um, uh, that the incident uh, in your last post when when there was a person accidentally shot, and you had to go and mm. uh, um, sort of guard the body, if, if that's the I guess that's the right term, yeah. um, and and you you got because of your um, uh, sort of the, the, the context, um, you were uncomfortable about a, a gun being left there and, and you moved it and and of course it got it into a lot of kind of a lot of trouble <laughs> in a way I, a of, yeah, that,
1: that, that, I really hadn't watched enough of our own cultural crime movies, I think because I couldn't stand seeing that. That rifle lying next to this poor man who was dead, and I moved it. Was such a peaceful scene, Paul, under those paperbark trees. It was, it was very strange. But yes, that was my. That was a big introduction to working in in Yarraland That was in my first, in my first few weeks that 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 happened. Yes, and then to, to be in that community during that process of grieving. It was. It was terrible, and that poor little boy. Yeah, so it was a that's a sad story.
0: Mm. Um, um, and I I will come back to that, but I also want to touch on um that your experience with the CEDEP uh, Community Development mm-hmm. Employment Program, which you were involved uh, in in its early phases. Um, and frankly, it's a program which which uh, to in much of our media, has not had a good reputation. But your experience of it, as you describe, was whilst patchy, was quite positive in a lot of ways.
1: Oh, it, it was indeed, Paul. I mean, we were the, as I said, um, I was in Canabel for the first of the CDP, the Community Development Employment Projects that were happening at that stage in 1989 in in Canabel, and they were... They were set up with a few foundational um, requirements. One was that the town, the Aboriginal community, had to want the CDP in their town. It had to have an Aboriginal board of management and it had to be run democratically. So they, they were the, the, the three things that pinned the foundations of, the, of a successful CDP. So in my first few weeks in Coonamble, my Aboriginal counterpart, Gail and I, our job was to find out whether the town really did want it, the, the Aboriginal community. So we went on, it was a wonderful experience for me. We visited every Aboriginal household in Coonamble to tell them about the CDEP and to ask whether anybody would be interested in joining the CDEP. And that actually became an informal census where we found out that there were 480 or 434 Aboriginal people in that town at that time. But even Gail herself thought that there were probably only about 300. So that had always been sort of undocumented. Anyway, we had our first meeting for the CDEP and it was very well attended. And on that very first day, 30 people signed up. And then, within a very short period of time, we we had eighty four participants, which was the maximum amount allowed for our CDEP. Our employment opportunities really came from the Canamble Shire Council, so we did a lot of work with you know clearing out culverts, um, mowing the grass for that was too long, you know fire hazard. Uh, we um, did gardening. We Uh, Prune trees, we looked up, we maintained the cemetery, and then we also did work for St. Vincent de Paul clients. We sort of took over for vinnies where home care left off. So we did the heavy work for the older folk. We did the heavy gardening, the heavy mowing. We helped them clean out sheds, take stuff to the dump, those sorts of things. So we had plenty of um, opportunities for, for engaging our people in work. And I think the thing was is that, you know, with the CDEP, those people were working for their unemployment benefits. They were working, it was called colloquially, uh, working for the dole. So they worked 12 hours a week officially for for their dole money, but in actual fact they loved working on the CDEP and many of them would actually work up to 20 hours a week because they just like to come and work with their mates. So it was it was a very successful CDEP, and the whole town responded. And so attitudes in the white community changed. Relationships got better between the, the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. I mean, it was really a win-win-win. A, a but I think that the secret of it was is that it was run, it it was for Aboriginal people. The CDEPs had been set up specifically for Aboriginal people. So they had something that was theirs and they all, they found friendship on the CDP and they improved their skills. So it was a, it was a winner right up until 1996 when Canambal got rezoned and not deemed remote anymore and it was abolished by the government. So the government gives and then the government takes
0: away. Which I guess brings us back to this notion of of listening, um, and of course we can't avoid in this context talking about the the referendum, um, and I guess mm. that last point illustrates one of the the uh, concerns of the Aboriginal communities to to have this uh, the new kind of process, one that's less uh, subject to the whim of governments or uh, the whim of of anybody else. That's some permanent so that some of these programs, they're shown to be successful, have a continuity.
1: I I think that that is absolutely essential. Communities are so scattered around Australia. They're not just all living in... People are just living in Melbourne and Sydney with access to mainstream services. The services for communities have to be... um, really managed by Aboriginal people and they they should not be subject to so much change where you, you get something and then it's taken away. I mean the whole CDP structure was removed in 2007 and that was during the intervention in the Northern Territory. so when um, that was under the it was introduced under the Howard government but then continued under the Rudd government. So in 2007, one of the things of the intervention was that the government wanted to quarantine the wages of Aboriginal people so that they could only spend 50% of their their money on alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, right? And the rest had to be spent in authorised places such as supermarkets and... With that intervention, they could not the government could not control the wages of CDEP workers because they were wages. They weren't unemployment benefits, even though it was the same amount. It came from a different bucket. It didn't come out of the Centrelink bucket. It came out of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs bucket. So to get around that, they abolished the whole CDEP. So I think that's very illustrative. So the government wants to do something. So what it does, it just takes away an entire program from every Aboriginal person that was on the CDP, and I think probably at that time there were about 22,000 people employed under the CDP. And that, of course, left an enormous hole in in communities because those workers had been doing all the work around the community. But when the government abolished the Kanamble CDP, the whole town suffered. The whole town suffered because they, they'd been... Um, not-for-profit businesses and for-profit businesses and everything was bought locally. So when it was just wiped out, everybody, everybody lost, you know. So I think this this continuity is really important. And I th- the, the other part of it is listening and respecting Aboriginal voices. So it's it's recognising people, the Aboriginal people, as being here in the First Peoples of Australia, but actually listening and respecting their voices, because if that doesn't happen, then so much knowledge can be missed.
0: And I think, uh, thank you for the book. I think um, it is worth people looking out up because um, you do tell, uh, you give uh, your first person account of, of a lot of these experiences um, at the good and the bad, um, and you you give us a good sense of uh, of what works and what doesn't and and the sorts of things that need to be done to make things work. Um, So uh, I I think that, uh, yeah, I think it's a good contribution. And I think, um, I guess, particularly, as I said before, in this context, it it makes a particularly useful um, contribution that uh, I I think people should welcome.
1: Thank you, Paul. I I hope so. And I I do hope too that it will be around forever because I think it is part of our history. So if anybody wants it, they can just look up www.crossingcultures.au and they can find my book and my little website there.
0: Okay. Thanks very much for your time, Barbara. It's been a great conversation and uh, good luck with the book.
1: Thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure.
0: And I, I will come back to that, but I also want to touch on um, the, your experience with the CEDEP, uh, Community Development Employment Program, which you were involved uh, in in its early phases. Um, and frankly, it's a program which which uh, to, in much of our media has not had a good reputation. But your experience of it, as you describe, was whilst patchy, was quite positive in a lot of ways.
1: Oh, it was indeed, Paul. I mean, we were the. As I said, um, I was in Kunamba for the first of the CDP, the Community Development Employment Projects that were happening at that stage in 1989 in in, in and they was they were set up with a few foundational requirements. One was that the town, the Aboriginal community, had to want the CDP in their town. It had to have an Aboriginal board of management and it had to be run democratically. So that they, they were the, the, the three things that pinned the foundations of the of a successful CDP. So in my first few weeks in Coonamble, my Aboriginal counterpart, Gail and I, our job was to find out whether the town really did want it, the, the Aboriginal community. So we went on it was a wonderful experience for me. We visited every Aboriginal household in Coonamble to tell them about the CDEP and to ask whether anybody would be interested in joining the CDEP. And that actually became an informal census where we found out that there were four hundred and eighty or 434 Aboriginal people in that town at that time, but even Gail herself thought that there were probably only about 300, so that had always been sort of undocumented. Anyway, we had our first meeting for the CDEP and it was very well attended, and on that very first day, thirty people signed up, and then within a very short period of time, we we had eighty four participants, which was the maximum amount allowed for our CDEP. Our employment opportunities really came from the Canambleshire Council, so we did a lot of work with you know clearing out culverts, um, mowing the grass for that was too long, you know fire hazard. Uh, we Um, did gardening, we uh, pruned trees, we looked up, we maintained the cemetery, and then we also did work for St. Vincent de Paul clients. We sort of took over for vinnies where home care left off. So we did the heavy work for the older folk. We did the heavy gardening, the heavy mowing. We helped them clean out sheds, take stuff to the dump, those sorts of things. So we had plenty of um, opportunities for for engaging our people in work. And I think the thing was is that, you know, with the CDEP, those people were working for their unemployment benefits. They were working, it was called colloquially, uh, working for the dole. So they worked 12 hours a week officially for, for their dole money. But in actual fact, they loved working on the CDEP and many of them would actually work up to 20 hours a week because they just like to come and work with their mates. So it was it was a very successful CDEP. And the whole town responded. And so attitudes in the white community changed. Relationships got better between the, the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. I mean, it was really a a win-win-win, but I think that the secret of it was is that it was run it, it was for Aboriginal people. The CDEPs had been set up specifically for Aboriginal people. so they had something that was theirs. and they all they found friendship on the CDEP and they improved their skills. So it was a, it was a winner right up until 1996 when Canambal got rezoned. And not deemed remote anymore, and it was abolished by the government. So the government gives, and then the government takes away.
0: Which I guess brings us back to this notion of of listening. Um, and of course, we can't avoid in this context talking about the the referendum. Um, and I guess mm. that last point illustrates one of the the uh, concerns of the Aboriginal communities to to have this uh, the new kind of process one that's less uh, subject to the whim of governments or uh, the whim of, of anybody else. That's some permanence so that some of these programs, they're shown to be successful, have a continuity.
1: I think that that is absolutely essential. Communities are so scattered around Australia. They're not just all living in... People are just living in Melbourne and Sydney with access to mainstream services. The services for, for communities have to be um really managed by Aboriginal people and they they should not be subject to so much change where you, you get something and then it's taken away. I mean the whole CDP structure was removed in 2007 and that was during the intervention in the Northern Territory. so when um, that was under the it was introduced under the Howard government but then continued under the Rudd government. So in 2007, one of the things of the intervention was that the government wanted to quarantine the wages of Aboriginal people so that they could only spend 50% of their their money on alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, right? And the rest had to be spent in authorised places such as supermarkets and... With that intervention, they could not. the government could not control the wages of CDEP workers because they were wages. They weren't unemployment benefits, even though it was the same amount. It came from a different bucket. It didn't come out of the Centrelink bucket. It came out of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs bucket. So to get around that, they abolished the whole CDEP. So I think that's very illustrative. So the government wants to do something. So what it does, it just takes away an entire program from every Aboriginal person that was on the CDP, and I think probably at that time there were about 22,000 people employed under the CDP. And that, of course, left an enormous hole in in communities because those workers had been doing all the work around the community. Like when the government abolished the Canambal CDP, the whole town suffered. The whole town suffered because they, they'd been... Um, not-for-profit businesses and for-profit businesses and everything was bought locally. So when it was just wiped out, everybody, everybody lost, you know. So I think this this continuity is really important. And I, the, the other part of it is listening and respecting Aboriginal voices. So it's, it's recognising people, the Aboriginal people, as being here in the First Peoples of Australia, but... Actually, listening and respecting their voices because if that doesn't happen, then so much knowledge can be missed.
0: Thank you for the book. I think um, it is worth people looking out up because um, you do tell, uh, you give uh, your first person account of, of a lot of these experiences, um, at the good and the bad, um, and you you give us a good sense of uh, of what works and what doesn't, and and the sorts of things that need to be done to make things work.
1: Thank you, Paul. I I hope so. And I I do hope too that it will be around forever because I think it is part of our history. So if anybody wants it, they can just look up www.crossingcultures.au and they can find my book and my little website there.
0: Okay. Thanks very much for your time, Barbara. It's been a great conversation and uh, good luck with the book.
1: Thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure.